life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Before we open God's Word this morning, let's make sure that we are indeed prepared for our study. We do this through the private use of confession and silent prayer. Use of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess, that is to admit, acknowledge our sins to God the Father. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we have unconfessed sin in the life, we're told in the Scriptures that if we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. So our spiritual life is basically put on hold when we are out of fellowship, grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit, and it's not until we recover through the use of 1 John 1, 9 that we can advance and learn Scripture, apply Scripture, and go forward in the spiritual life. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer before we open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the privilege that we have today to open Your Word because Your Word is what illuminates our thinking to every aspect of life. That Your Word is not just there to tell us how to have a relationship with You, but in Your Word You tell us everything we need to know in order to start bringing into dominion every category of thinking, every aspect, every part of intellectual activity through understanding Your Word and the starting point being Your revelation. So now we pray that we would be submissive to this as we renovate our thinking, renewing our minds with the ultimate goal in living lives that glorify You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I realize I have my job cut out for me this morning because we are going to get into some pretty heavy stuff in this particular section of John 8. And the weather has not cooperated because it's warm in here. And I'm on the verge of yawning and taking a nap. So I imagine you are. So we're just going to have to put forth a little extra effort to make sure we maintain our concentration this morning to overcome uh, the heat in the uh, auditorium here. So open your Bibles with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and we are going to see how the controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees intensifies. Now, I know that some of you were probably brought up in a home or in some legalistic background where you were told that it was always wrong to argue. And that's just pure human viewpoint arrogance, wimpiness. Now, it is not necessarily always right to argue either. It is how you do it and when you do it and what you are arguing about that is the issue. And as we see in this situation, if you are in a situation like Jesus Christ, it is very Christ-like to argue. But as I said, it depends on how you do it and what the issues are and when you do it. As we've seen in our study of John, Jesus has been very careful to pick the time and the uh, occasion for His confrontation with the Pharisees. And in this particular situation in John 8, it goes back to John 7 when Jesus made His third trip to Jerusalem and to attend the Feast of the Tabernacles. We saw how the controversy increased in intensity throughout chapter 7 as Jesus seemed to make more and more claims that were very harsh and antagonistic to the Pharisees. In fact, at one point, Jesus is going around, uh, you can almost picture Him with His arms spread out, screaming, uh, you know me, you know where I'm from, and I have not come of myself, but He who sent me is true, true whom you do not know. I know Him because I am from Him, and He sent me. 
Jesus continually is making these claims, shouting them out amidst the multitudes in the temple that He is the Son of God and that salvation is by faith alone in Him. Furthermore, on the last day of the feast, He made the amazing announcement, He who believes in Me, as the Scripture says, from His innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Each time He makes these claims, the anger and the resentment among the legalistic, self-righteous, religious crowd in Jerusalem intensifies. And yet, rather than trying to somehow calm things down, Jesus just turns up the fire with each statement. We saw last time at the beginning of chapter 8 the encounter with the woman taken in adultery and how Jesus uh, finessed that whole situation as they tried to lay a trap for Him. And at the conclusion of that, we saw that it was early in the morning on the day after the last day of the feast, Jesus had gone back into the temple. According to verse uh, 20 of this chapter, it was outside the treasury, so He was in the courtyard of the women in the, in the temple. And that He would be facing east. And just at that early hour, the sun has risen and is rising in the east. And the gateway into, the temp- into that courtyard was on the east. So as the woman departed and was walking into the rising light of the sun, Jesus then makes a phenomenal announcement to the crowd. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now there's a tremendous amount in this, and we have to understand a little background, so I want you to turn with me, keep your place here, Turn back to John chapter 1. The issue of light is a major theme that John wants us to pay attention to in this Gospel. Remember, John is 90 or around 90 years of age when he wrote this. He was probably a young man of close to 20 to 30 at the time of these events. And so he has had 50, 60 years to contemplate what took place. So when he writes this gospel, he writes it at different levels. And depending on how much you want to dig, there's a tremendous amount to ascertain here because John is communicating things to us at different levels. Now, I keep saying this and I keep adding the warning that I'm not saying that these things didn't happen the way he says they happened. But the way he organizes his material is to communicate several things to us at different levels. And back in the first chapter, he starts to lay the groundwork for this theme of light. Light is related to illumination, the illumination of the mentality of the human race to divine truth. In verse 4 we read, In Him was, it's an imperfect tense of a me, it always was and always will be life. Life has its ultimate source in God, It does not generate in the creation as a result of chance or evolution in any way, shape, or form. In Him was life and the life, that is the life that resides in Him, in Jesus Christ, that life was the light of men. So Jesus' life is related to illumination. What John is saying is life exists in the Logos, in God, not in Creation, But what man always wants to do is to take the attributes of God and transfer those into creation. Man wants to make life controllable. And man's assertion in or to control his life and his assertion of independence from God, as we saw in the first hour, the essence of sin is not doing something defined as evil, but the essence of sin is is the assertion of creaturely autonomy or independence from the creature. When man says, I want to run my life my way, that is sinful. It is not that there was something inherently evil in the fruit. It is that it was a rejection of God as the definer of reality and man attempting to define reality on his own terms. And that is what man continually wants to do. He wants to control life. He wants to say that life is determined by what He says it is. Now, I want you to see that life does not originate from inside nature, 
but from outside nature. It has its source in God. Now, life in the Scripture is a very different concept, and you need to understand this. Because in our culture, we want to define life in terms of what I would call cell life or organic life. In other words, you'll look at a plant. Those of you who are gardeners, you look at your flowers and you enjoy the flowers, and that is organic life. But in the Bible, that is not life. Life does not occur in the Bible unless you have the presence of nefesh in the Hebrew word for life or soul, or ruach, the word for spirit. Now, the animal kingdom has nefesh. That's life. The human beings have nefesh. That's life. Plants do not have nefesh. That's why Adam and the woman could eat plant life in the garden and they weren't killing anything. There was no death in the garden because plant life is not life in biblical terms. Organic life is not the definition. So, in the Bible, it defines life in terms of breath. When breath occurs, that's when there is life, not before. So, the Bible clearly distinguishes between simple, organic, and biological life and full life that is related to the presence of controversy about it. But this just attests its historical validity. Remember during the Feast of Tabernacles, it was also called the Feast of Booths. And it was reminiscent of the time that the Jews uh, were traveling in, in the wilderness and they lived in temporary shelters. And it looked back to that time and also looked forward to the time when Messiah would dwell with them. And they built these temporary shelters out of palm leaves and willow branches in their front yards. And during this Feast of Booths, that's where they lived. They went out and they moved into their little uh, shelter in the front yard. But here we're told they don't go home to their booths. They go home to their houses, which indicates that whoever wrote this, and I think it was the Gospel, it was John, but whoever wrote this understood the dynamics. It's the last day. The feast is over. They go home to their own house. But we've seen the arrogance that the um, Sanhedrin displays here. And it all revolves around the whole idea, the theme of their misuse and abuse of the law. And that sets the context for the very next episode. Now, if you're sitting out there, I don't know how many of you use different versions of the Bible. If you have a King James Version... It just flows right ahead from 753 on. But if you are utilizing a, one of the modern translations, New American Standard, New International Version, one of these other versions, you will notice that there is a bracket there at the beginning of that verse that extends all the way down to verse 11 where you have the close of the brackets. And somewhere along there, you will probably have a note in your margin that these verses are not in the oldest and best manuscripts and therefore may not be part of the original uh, manuscript. There's a tremendous controversy about this. This passage is, in fact, is quite notorious for the intense arguments generated about its canonicity. So we have to take a little time this morning to investigate the canonicity of this passage. Is this the Word of God? If, as what happened in the second century under the Edict of Diocletian, if the uh, authorities are going to come and knock on your door and haul you off for possession of the Word of God, are you willing to give your life for this episode? One of my professors at Dallas used to say, on a good day... I'm not sure that I would give my life for this. So we have to answer that question. We have to look at the, the whole issue here. Now remember, canonicity is the study and the recognition that certain books belong to the, to the canon of Scripture, that certain books were inspired by God. They are therefore inerrant in the original manuscripts and therefore authoritative in everything they say. This is what is called textual criticism. Now, textual criticism is in itself a science. I am not a textual critic. Uh, the only person I know who is close to being a textual critic 
is a professor I had at Dallas Seminary for baby Greek by the name of Zane Hodges, who edited an edition of the uh, uh, majority text. Uh, very few people are, I mean, it's a vast science in and of itself. You have to study paleography, which is the study of writing and the history of writing. You have to study orthography, dating, learn how to date the various manuscripts from the materials they're written on, whether it's vellum or parchment. How to reconstruct, how to reconstruct the various families so you can put together three or four different manuscripts. You might have manuscript one, two, and three, and they're very similar, and you can reconstruct the fact that they were probably all copies of this uh, earlier manuscript we'll call A. We no longer have A. But by looking at these three, we can reconstruct what A looked like. And I mean, they create elaborate trees of diagrams as they try to figure out how it all relates back to the original. And I'm certainly not going to bore you with all of those details, uh, primarily because it goes far beyond my comprehension and understanding. Uh, it gets quite technical, but that's what's involved in the science of textual criticism. And you have to do that for any ancient manuscript, whether you're studying Homer or Caesar, whether you're studying medieval manuscripts like Thomas Aquinas. You always have, if you don't have the original, then all you have is copies. Some copies are going to disagree with other copies here or there, and you have to be able to uh, study them and compare them in order to come up with the original. Now, most of the time, all this ever involves is a word here, a word there, sometimes just a phrase, but there are two places in the Scripture where it involves lengthy passages. One is the ending of Mark, at the end of Mark chapter 16, I believe, and the other is this particular passage. And because it's quite lengthy and stuck right here in the middle of the Gospel of John, we have to ask the question, is this canonical? Now, the reason I'm doing this and taking this time is, frankly, I've spent over 50 hours studying this in just the last couple of weeks. I've spent a lot of time studying this in the past. But the thing is, when you spend over 50 hours studying something like this and then you have to get up and teach on it, and you can say, yes, it's canonical and move on, then I really don't have a whole lot else to say because I've spent most of my time trying to figure out whether or not it was canonical. And it's also helpful for you as a believer to understand what the process is, how you arrive at these conclusions, because it boosts your confidence in the veracity of the Word of God. And there's a lot of interesting and important things to learn along the way. So we're going to look at about 13 different points in answering the question, is this canonical? Point number one, the controversy. Numerous commentators and well-known teachers state that this text is not found in the, and this is always the phrase you hear, it's not in the oldest and best manuscripts. Now what they really mean is the oldest are the best, because they're the oldest. We'll see the problem with that a little later on. Just because you have an old manuscript from, let's say, 300 A.D. doesn't mean it's the best. If you have a manuscript from 800 that is a perfect copy of one from 200, then the one from 800 is good, and the one from 300, which has errors in it, can be bad. You understand? So oldest is not best. Oldest is just oldest. But that's always what you hear is oldest and best manuscripts that therefore it's not part of the original gospel written by John, and it's therefore not canonical. On the other hand, there are those who state without qualification that though the textual evidence against its inclusion is very strong, there is also adequate evidence that this episode was in the original and therefore is canonical. So we have to look at this and we have to take it apart. And there were times during the last couple of weeks when it was taking my brain apart trying to figure out all the different arguments. So we're going to try to summarize them very carefully so that they don't burn too many of your brain cells in the process. But you will just enjoy learning some interesting things about the Scriptures. So points two through six are going to be the arguments listed against inclusion. The arguments listed against inclusion, of course, the main argument against inclusion is that it is not in the oldest manuscripts. Usually they say the oldest and best. It's not included in the oldest manuscripts. This is point number one. In the last couple of hundred years, they have discovered a number of ancient manuscripts, probably uh, the most significant of which were called uncials. Now, an uncial 
is a manuscript that is written in all capital letters. For example, uh, and, and, no, and none of these early manuscripts, none of the manuscripts had space between words of punctuation. So the earliest manuscripts are all uncials, and they date from about the 4th or 5th century. Let's put a timeline here. Here's the cross. We'll mark this 1500. That's about the time of the Reformation, which occurred on October 31st, 1517. And the 3rd or 4th century, about 350, occurs right about here. The canon closed about 95 A.D. So 350, here we end, we'll have 200 right here. And then down here is about 350. When you have uh, two or three different manuscripts were discovered that originate between 350 and 450 A.D. Now, in these old manuscripts, many of them do, most of them do not include this at all. Others include the episode after Luke 21:24 or 21:38, and one manuscript includes it after John 7:36 instead of after John 7:52. So the passage floats around. So you think not only is it not in many old manuscripts, but it floats. Maybe it's not scripture. That's the initial knee-jerk reaction, and it sounds like that would be a fair conclusion. Now, remember, the King James Version includes it. But you have to realize that the King James Version was based on the fifth edition of Erasmus, which, was, which in turn was based on, which was put together in about 15, uh, somewhere around 1511 to 1520. It went through several editions uh, I think the fifth edition finally came out in the 1540s, so we'll put it down here. It was based on only six manuscripts, the oldest of which dates to the 10th century. So the King James Version is based on a Greek text that is based on only six manuscripts, the earliest of which is the 10th century. So that's not very old. That became known as the Textus Receptus. And there are many people who believe that the king, they're, they're called King James only people. Uh, you may have run into them. They believe that if the King James Version was good enough for the Apostle Paul, that it's good enough for us. <laughs> Only trouble is the Apostle Paul didn't speak English, so. And the King James Version came along some 1400, 1500 years after Paul. But the Textus Receptus, or the TR, includes this, and many people will, are, are willing to die for the TR. I'm not. Now, in the 19th century, several ancient manuscripts were discovered, and these are fascinating stories. In fact, I remember the first time, I was in high school, the first time I heard a message on this passage. And uh, I've never forgotten it because of the things I learned about the text of Scripture and how it boosted your confidence in Scripture. Uh, one ancient manuscript is called Codex Aleph. It was, it was originated, they date the manuscript about 350 A.D., right about here. And it was discovered by Count von Tischendorf. Now, Tischendorf was one of the great heroes of textual criticism back in the 19th century. And this was in the the 1840s. And Tischendorf is traveling through the Middle East, and he's spending the night at a monastery up on Mount Sinai called St. Catherine's. And as the monks are, are starting the fire in order to warm up the room, they're feeding pieces of parchment that they've got this whole pile of parchment, and they're using that as a fire starter. And as they light the fire and it flames up, all of a sudden, Tischendorf, who knew nine languages, he had a photographic memory. At one point, it took in, in a, a, a few weeks, he memorized the entire Old, Old Testament in Hebrew. So he had a magnificent mind, and he immediately recognized when this flamed up that these letters were Scripture. And so he put out the fire, and they had just gotten into this particular uh, manuscript, so not much of it had burned up. And he discovered a very ancient manuscript of the New Testament that dated back to, I think it was around the 8th century B.C. Well, he took that, he got permission, he took it all with him, went back, translated it, got it published, and then a few years later he was down in that area again, and he went to St. Catherine's, and he was talking with the steward of the monastery. They, they, They didn't have an abbot at that time, it was under the under the auspices of the Tsar of Russia. And so he's talking to the steward. He shows him what he had published from the manuscript early, he had discovered earlier. And the steward says, oh, I have an even older manuscript. So he goes back into, into the um, 
storage area there in the monastery, and he pulls out this manuscript that dated to 350 A.D. And Tischendorf was just overwhelmed. There was a long story. Eventually, it was donated to the Tsar of Russia. Then after the Bolshevik Revolution, it was given to or was sold to England, and now it resides in the British Museum. But it is just about the, one of the oldest copies of the, uh, of the New Testament, and it does not include this episode at all. Uh, in Codex A, which is also called Codex Alexandrinus, this was discovered by Sir Thomas Rowe in Turkey in the middle of the 19th century. It, too, is another uncial like Olive, and uh, uh, it was presented to uh, England also. Excuse me, it was discovered in 1627 by Sir Thomas Rowe, and Cyril Lucar, who was the patriarch of Constantinople, donated it to Charles I of England, and so it has always resided in the, uh, in the British Museum, but it does not include this episode either. The third major manuscript is Codex Vaticanus, again a remarkable story. We went over some of these a while back when we, when we studied how we got the Bible. And this was the episode where Samuel Tregellis was traveling in the Middle East. He was another young man, remarkable mind, uh, taught himself all the original languages of Scripture, and he's traveling throughout uh, Europe looking for ancient manuscripts of the Bible. He went to the Vat- He heard there was one at the Vatican. Now, what had happened was that when Napoleon conquered Italy, he took the Pope and the Pope's library back to France. That was when they discovered that the Vatican Library had a very ancient copy of the Scriptures. So Tregellis had heard about this. He goes and got permission to look at it. But they were very, it was guarded jealously. He had to stand at a table. He couldn't have any writing instruments with him at all. He had a, a priest standing on each side of him to make sure he didn't look at the passage for too long. And he was closely guarded. And he was only allowed to look at it for a week, only at 15-minute increments. Well, he memorized a good bit of it, but he went home. And he told his friend Tischendorf. Now, Tregellis saw it in 1844. Tischendorf didn't get permission to see it until 1866. But Tischendorf had a, had a photographic memory. Tischendorf went in under the, almost the same rules. He could only look at it 15 minutes at a time. Had a guard watching him so he couldn't write anything down. But he went in and he memorized the entire codex. Went home, wrote it all down published it, it was so close to the original that it forced the Vatican to finally publish it in 1889. And it's an even earlier manuscript than Codex Aleph. It probably predates it by just a few years. Then the fourth manuscript is Codex Ephraim. Catherine de' Medici, a member of the famous de' Medici family, was fond of reading as her devotional literature from the sermons of a 4th century Syrian preacher by the name of Ephraim. And so she had this collection of his sermons, and she would read those. And when she died, uh, she, left her, she had married the king, of, uh, uh, excuse me, the king of France, Henry of Navarre. And when she died, she left her copy of these sermons of Ephraim to the French uh, National Museum. French National Library. In 1834, a student was reading these sermons and noticed that there were various indentations in the vellum. So he surmised accurately that something had been erased before these sermons were written down. Tischendorf, once again, developed a chemical process to restore the original. And it was discovered that in the 12th century, someone had erased a copy of the Bible and, in its pl- and then written on this manuscript the um, uh, sermons of Ephraim. So they recovered this, this particular, uh, they were able to recover 60% of the New Testament, which included major portions of almost every book. Now, that also goes back to the 5th century, and it, that manuscript does not include this this particular episode. Now, there are many other papyri and many others that don't, but those are the oldest. And usually if people say, people in textual criticism say that if two or three of those four manuscripts agree, then that's what the original said. That's sort of their rule of thumb. But we have to go past that because there's other evidence. So, first of all, we have seen that it's not in the oldest in what some consider to be the... Um, the best manuscripts. Now, the second line of evidence is it's not cited by many church fathers. 
Origen doesn't mention it. Chrysostom doesn't mention it. Cyril of Alexandria doesn't mention it. Very few of the church fathers or none of the other church fathers mention it. And that's usually what's argued. Third, there, there is the argument that there are two or three words in this section that are unique to all of Johannine literature. John doesn't use this vocabulary anywhere else, so somebody else must have written it. That's the conclusion. And then, last, you hear the heresy argument that at the end, when Jesus tells the woman, go and sin no more, Jesus never would have said that. He's much too much of a realist. He knows we're all going to sin. So obviously that is false. Jesus would never tell anybody to go and sin no more because none of us are sinless. We all have a sin nature, and therefore that, that's fraudulent. Now, it, for many people, this sows the case up, and therefore this should not be included in the Scriptures. However, there are some answers to these arguments. First of all, Papias was an early church father who was a student of the Apostle John. He was taught the Scriptures by the Apostle John, and he wrote several things at the beginning of the second century. And um, uh, in, in, his, in Eusebius' Ecclesiastical History, Eusebius writes, Papias has expounded another story about a woman who was accused before the Lord of many sins, which the, notice this, which the gospel according to the Hebrews contains. Now, that's an apocryphal book. Now, the question is, why was this in the gospel according to the Hebrews? Why what did Papias expound it? Why did he teach it? And this all seems to indicate that not only did Papias know of it, and Papias lived very early. I mean, he was a student of John's. So that gives us evidence that people knew about this episode at a very, very early date. We need to ask, why was it not found in John's Gospel? Was it never there, or had it been removed for certain reasons? That's the question we have to ask. Was it removed for certain reasons? And Augustine, who lived in the uh, 5th century, says, or 4th century, says that some people had removed this section from their Bibles because they were afraid it would give women, give their wives, a justification for adultery. Now, remember, in the early church, they were dominated by asceticism. So that any... Sexual involvement is wrong. So they don't want to justify this. So with the, in the asceticism of the day, it is, listen, it is more likely in asceticism to remove a passage that deals with adultery than to add a passage that deals with adultery. Okay? That's beginning to set the stage. So there's a reason why it could have been taken out at a very, from some copies, very early. So the absence can be... The reason it would not be in some old manuscripts is because it was taken out of the manuscript that they were copied from. Most of the manuscript I mentioned, manuscripts I mentioned earlier, Aleph, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, and Ephraim, all originate from the same area. So you have Aleph, a, B, and C. Those are the four manuscripts. Those could all have very easily could have been copies of an earlier manuscript. And that manuscript deleted the story. So that would explain, and all of these, the earliest of these is dated about 325, but as another scholar points out, the canon was pretty much solidified by 200. So that by 200 A.D., here's our timeline, here's Christ, here's the close of the canon in 95, here's 200, the oldest manuscript we have is 325. But by this time, the canon is fairly well solidified, so it would be virtually impossible to add or delete something after 200. Well, none of the old manuscripts go back before 200. But whatever they were copied from would come from before 200. So the oldest manuscript argument just has some real real problems. So what we have seen, just in terms of summary, 
is that reasons for including it, it's affirmed by Papias, it was known. It's removed for fear of justifying adultery. The absence in the oldest manuscripts can be explained by the fact that they were there was one or two manuscripts that those came from that did not have, include the text. But the fourth reason gets into what I think are the strongest arguments for including it. It has various stylistic traits that are unique to the Apostle John. In fact, I really think that in terms of deciding whether or not something like this is included really depends on, on looking at, at evidence of this nature. For example, look down in 8.6. In 8.5, Jesus makes the statement, or, or the Pharisees make the statement, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And then in verse 6, John explains the significance of that. He says, and they were saying this to test him. Now, this phrase in the Greek is tuta de elegon parizo, is the verb. I'm not going to write all that up on the board. And it means, and they said this to tempt him. This same basic phrase is used by John and only by John. In the New Testament, it's used by John in John 6.6, 6, in John 7.39, and they said this saying, uh, 11.51, 12.6, 12.33, 13.11, and 13.28. So this is a very consistent style trait of, of the Apostle John. Second, when Jesus addresses the woman down in verse 10, he addresses her by the vocative gunai, woman. He did that with, with his mother Mary back in, at the episode of changing the wine into water. When she came to him and said, Son, we're out of wine. He said, Woman, what does that have to do with me? When he addressed the woman at the well, he said, Woman. And this is typical. Only John records the Lord Jesus addressing women in this manner. Now, it's not an impolite form. It's like... For us, it would be like saying, ma'am. But only John records this. It's not recorded in any of the Gospel writers. So again, this is a un- something unique to, to John. Third, the phrase, sin no more, is also found in John 5.14. When Jesus healed the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda, when the man left, he said, go and sin no more. Now, Jesus doesn't mean go and don't ever commit sin again. Once again, Jesus is too much of a realist to say something like that. In fact, the NIV recognizes that this is much more of an idiom and catches the thrust of this. They translate it, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus is not saying don't go and sin no more. He says don't go and commit this sin anymore. You've got to take it in the context. Go and sin no more, he means don't commit this sin anymore. Quit committing adultery. And then a fourth thing related to the style. If it is a late edition that's added by someone and written by someone other than John, this guy does a remarkable job at imitating John's style and he includes lots of tiny details that are historically accurate that somebody living a hundred years later after Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Roman armies in 70 A.D. would not be aware of. So it has the the atmosphere of textual veracity. In fact, the interesting thing is that almost every single scholar and pastor that I've heard that says this shouldn't be part of the text, after they get through going through all the evidence and saying it's not part of John's original manuscript, they then exegete it and treat it as if it's part of the Bible. And they say it has the ring of historical truth. Well, that's right. It has the, I think it has the ring of historical truth because I think the evidence is weighted on including it in the canon. So we've seen that it has typical stylistic traits of John. And fifth, we've seen that additions or deletions are very unlikely after 200 A.D. And what that means is that we don't have any manuscripts that go back that far, so the uh, old manuscript view isn't quite as strong. Sixth, It fits the narrative of John. This story really fits. Now, when you first read it, 
And you have all of this about the controversy with the Pharisees in John 7. And then you come to all of a sudden this episode with the woman taken in adultery. And then in John 8, 12, Jesus makes his second I am statement. I am the light of the world. You might wonder, well, what does this have to do with John's theme that uh, he's presenting all of this information, all of these signs, that these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. What is John's doing in all of this? Well, let me explain because this is very important. First of all, the context is the celebrations and the party atmosphere of the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember several weeks ago I read to you out of the Mishnah how, they talked, how the rabbis talked about the tremendous celebrations and they would party and celebrate all night long. Well, in a context like that, you can understand why a couple of folks who are from out of town might get together and get engaged in some illicit uh, liaison and commit adultery. So that fits the context of the feasting and celebration of the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. Secondly, we saw the incident, the mention of going to their house in 753, which also fits the context. Third, the narrative of the woman taken in adultery is, is used to illustrate what's just been stated at the end of the last chapter, that the self-righteous Pharisees are not concerned with the Mosaic Law. They're only concerned with twisting it and using it for their own religious purposes. Furthermore, it is a wonderful illustration of the point Nicodemus just made at the end of the previous chapter. Though the Pharisees accused the crowds of knowing nothing about the law, what this reveals is that the Pharisees care nothing about the law. They're not concerned with justice. They're concerned with setting Jesus up and getting Him crucified. So in this light, This entire unjust judicial proceeding is merely a foreshadowing of the unjust judicial proceeding that will come about later that will culminate in Christ's crucifixion. A fourth thing in terms of context, the passage begins in the very early dawn. Look at John 8, 2. After everyone went to his home, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, On the shoulder of the Mount of Olives, just two miles south of Jerusalem, was the town of Bethany. That's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. He was very close to them. He probably went to their home and spent the night, and then he got up very early the next morning, oh, dark 30, to head back to the temple. Now, we know that because it says in the text, early in the morning, and it says in, uh, I think in several manuscripts, it includes the term bathos, which means deep, And it was an idiom for in the deep dawn of the day. In other words, before the sun was coming up or just at that moment, Jesus goes to the temple. He shows up very early and there's still many people around. And when Jesus shows up, especially after all the controversy, the people gather around. And then it says, this is another note of of historical veracity, he sat down and began to teach. Now, if you were a rabbi, if you're living in the 20th century and you come somewhere to teach, you come up, you stand at the podium. But if you're at the time of Christ and you're a rabbi and you're going to teach somebody, you come and before you teach, you sit down. This is the position of authority for a rabbi. So somebody writing a hundred years later might not know that. So you have these important little details. Jesus sits down and begins to teach authoritatively. So it takes place early in the morning. Now the sun is just beginning to come up over the horizon. The sun is breaking the darkness of the night and bringing the light of the day. All of this sets the context for Jesus' announcement in John 8.12, I am the light of the world. Now the interesting thing about that is one of the famous textual critics by the name of F.J.A. Hort of the Westcott-Hort theory. They're the ones who basically put together the first theory that oldest is best. About a hundred years ago, Hort said that the emphasis in I am the light of the world must be understood in the context. He's in the temple and there's the great candelabra. 
But if you study the Gospel of John, every time Jesus says, I am the light of the world, or there's mention about Jesus being the light of the world, it's in the context of the sun versus the darkness of the night. So it fits. The context fits. Jesus is sitting down. The dawn's coming. The sun's just coming up. The Pharisees come. They bring this woman. They just caught her in the act, of course. Where's her husband? Why isn't he with her? According to the Mosaic Law, both were to be executed, uh, whether or not uh, for, for fornication, which is sex between two unmarried people who are not married to each other or anyone else. Adultery is between two people, one of whom is married to somebody else. The penalty for uh, fornication is stoning, but the law does not mention stoning, just death. So some said it was strangulation, some said other means of capital punishment, but it was clearly a capital crime. Now, when they brought her to Jesus, uh, it's in the very early dawn. This whole episode just takes a very short time. This is maybe at the most 15 or 20 minutes. And when the woman leaves, when it's all over with, and the woman leaves, it's in the court, the place where it takes place is in the court of the... of the temple. Here's a picture of the temple. It's out here in the court of the women. And when... um, when she leaves, it's in here, when she leaves, she's got to go out this gate. And when she goes out this gate, this is the west portico, this is the east portico. Which way is she walking? She's walking east into the sun, and the crowds are there, and as they're looking at her walking right into the sun, Jesus then announces, I am the light of the world. So this whole episode fits the context very well and not as a transition pointing out the duplicity and arrogance of the Pharisees and their complete disregard for the law and sets us up for the announcement by Jesus that He is the light of the world. So, let's look at the passage. I think I have covered all of the reasons. It fits the narrative flow and it fits the legal theme of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is a case. It's like case law. John says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He established, he lays out the whole Gospel as if he's presenting a legal brief. There's a lawsuit between God and the world. Jesus represents God. The Jews represent the fallen, fallen humanity. Jesus comes presenting evidence that He is the Messiah, the Son of God who will die on the cross. And the Pharisees reject it. The point that John is making as he goes through the seven signs of the epistle and he goes through the seven witnesses, John is pointing out that there's more than enough evidence that Jesus is who He claimed to be. But the Pharisees have completely rejected it time and time and time again. Because the issue is not objective, rational, empirical data. The issue is whether or not you want to know God or not. The issue is volition. The issue is whether or not at God consciousness you really want to know God or whether you've rejected the truth. And the Pharisees have an assumption that they know the truth and that God is not going to speak to them, at least not by a carpenter from Nazareth. So it fits the style, it fits the legal issues. There are several legal terms like judge, judge, judgment, witness that are used in this section in 8, 1 through 11, which fit the overall legal context of John. So I think that there's at least uh, very good argumentation and very good evidence that this is part of the canon of Scripture. Now, as we've seen in John's style... John weaves together imagery and substance throughout his book in order to enhance the point that he is making. Now, this is not, does not mean that he's playing fast and loose with the facts of history. Not at all. Everything he says happened the way he says it happened. 
But the way he brings certain things out is just to enhance his point. He uses a lot of different imagery. Now remember the whole theme of light in the Gospel of John. It's first introduced in John 1, 4, and 5, where John wrote, In Him, speaking of Jesus, the Logos of God, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and what happened? The darkness did not comprehend it. What happens in this episode? Jesus is shining the light of judicial truth on this episode, and the Pharisees, what do they do? They leave. The next time we read about light in the Gospel of John is in John 3, where John says, And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. What's just happened? The Pharisees have been in the presence of the light, and their abuse of the law is being exposed. So what do they do? They leave the light. They run and hide like, like, well, down south we have these big old cockroaches. You walk into some place early in the morning or late at night when it's dark and you flip the light on, all these cockroaches are surprised and they scurry away. They don't want to be seen. Someone once commented, the only time you ever see a cockroach is when he comes out into the light to die. (laughs) The laughter is from those who've been down south and know what I'm talking about. So, Jesus' light exposes the deeds of darkness. John 3.21 says, But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So, just before Jesus announces that he is the light of the world, John is going to relate this episode of the woman taken in adultery in order to illustrate the principle that the Pharisees loved the darkness rather than the light. And when the light is there, they run for cover. The result is that their anger and their hostility toward Jesus is going to increase. And they will be even further set in their course of doing away with him, taking his life. Okay, how does the episode unfold? The scribes and Pharisees bring this woman caught in adultery and they stand her up in the midst of the crowd before Jesus and they're going to put him on the spot. They want to test him. Now, the test here is twofold. First, they want to find out how he's going to respond. And they raise the question in verse 4. Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, I've often scratched my head at that. Because, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, how difficult it is to catch somebody in the very act of adultery. Now, I don't want you to dwell on that thought too long because we'll have to stop and confess our sins again. But it's, it's a very difficult procedure, so it might, that's why many people think it was a setup. They knew this woman, probably, maybe a prostitute, maybe a woman of loose morals, maybe even a woman that some of them had had a liaison with. So they set her up, and they're watching her, and they are prepared. They're hiding under the bed, or they're hiding in the closet, or somewhere. And at the right moment, they jump out, and they catch them in the act. But they send the guy off. Other people have suggested, and all of this is speculation, that the man involved was a Pharisee. So that's why they don't bring the man. They, they let him off. But he was there as the, as the bait in order to set everything up. So they catch her in the very act. Now they say, verse 5, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? So the issue is capital punishment. Now, because Israel is under the heel of Rome. Rome has forbidden them to execute anyone for a capital crime. They have to go to the Romans for permission. So if Jesus says, yes, stone her, number one, they're going to show that he's not very gracious. He lacks compassion. This is going to diminish his popularity with the crowds. It's also going to put him in conflict with the Roman legal authorities. If Jesus says, don't stone her, then Jesus is violating the Mosaic Law And they have shown once again that he is not who he claims to be. So they think they're going to catch him on the horns of a dilemma. John explains this in verse 6. They were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. Notice how Jesus is so relaxed. He doesn't react. He doesn't call down fire from heaven. 
he stoops down and with his finger he writes on the ground. Now a lot of speculation has gone into as to who he, what he wrote. Some have suggested that he wrote the names of all the men in the crowd, all the Pharisees who were guilty of adultery. Others have suggested that he wrote this Scripture verse or that Scripture verse. But it's not important for us to know what he wrote. Because if that were important, the Holy Spirit would have told us. One writer suggests that what's important here is the imagery that he wrote with his finger on the ground and the Mosaic Law was written with the finger of God. Now, I like that, but I think that that's a little too subtle for the Pharisees to have caught the point. Because it's not his writing that causes a reaction. He stoops down, he writes on the ground, time goes by, they get impatient, they're tapping their toes, and they continue to ask him, what should we do? Stoner or not? Stoner or not? What should we do? When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, notice, they haven't reacted to what he wrote at all. They're still asking him, and now they're going to react. He says, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He lays out the principle. And again he stoops down and he writes on the ground. When they heard it, not when they saw it, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one. I think there probably was some connection between what he wrote and what he said. But they understand that the point that he is making is that this entire proceeding is illegal. And so they begin to sheepishly depart one at a time until he's left there. The crowds are still there, of course. He's left there and she's standing there. And Jesus straightens up and looks at her and says, Woman, where'd they go? Did no one, is there no witness left to condemn you? According to the law, there had to be at least two witnesses. Remember that. That's what's going to come up in the very next paragraph. The issue of witnesses. He says, is no one here to condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Now, Jesus isn't letting her off the hook, folks. Jesus' mission is not to execute judgment at the first coming. He is not a judicial authority. He is not in any position to condemn her officially. So Jesus tells her, go and don't continue as an adulteress. That's the thrust of go and sin no more. All of this is to demonstrate that He is light. And it sets the context for the announcement in verse 12. Again, therefore, as she's departing the scene into the sun, sunrise, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me instead of watching after her, he says, He who follows me shall not walk in darkness like the Pharisees, which we've just seen, but shall have the light of life. Now next time we're going to come back and see the remarkable implications of this claim. Jesus, as we have seen, claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be full deity, undiminished deity, united with true humanity in one person Forever. Don't ever let anybody get away with saying that Jesus is just a good man. We've seen over and over again that the claims that Jesus Jesus makes for Himself are so great and powerful that you can't get away with just saying He was a good man. Jesus is either who He claims to be, the Son of God who died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, or Jesus is the greatest deceiver in all of human history. You're left with no other option. This is why John wrote in John 3, 19-21, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. You see, that's the issue. The issue that's brought out in this whole episode. Are you like the Pharisees, negative to God? Have you rejected the light for darkness? Or have you responded to the light and accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light. That is, the person who is positive to God comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The message of John is clear. He's building a case that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God. And that by believing, you might have life in His name. Because He tied those concepts together back in John 1, 3. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus is the only way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by Me. It's not by works. It's not by church membership. It's not by moral reformation of the life. It's by putting your faith alone in Christ alone that you have eternal salvation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word this morning, for the lessons that we have learned about Jesus as the light of the world. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their salvation, that right now they would take the opportunity to make that certain. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. All you have to do is right now in the privacy of your own soul, say, Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Scripture says, if you believe, you have eternal life. Simply trusting, that's what belief is. It's trusting in Christ alone, relying upon Him exclusively for your salvation. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, we pray that we would have our confidence strengthened in Your Word by the things we studied this morning on the preservation of Your Word and and how You have preserved Your Word for us. And we can understand that this is absolute truth. It is not a document like all other documents, but it is the uniquely revealed Word of God breathed out by You and preserved for us throughout all these centuries. And now, Father, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would remind us of these things and encourage us with them in the coming week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.